We're going to be reading the entirety of chapter 32 of Jeremiah. I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. And I'll bring you out the New King James Version. Jeremiah chapter 32. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, seventeen shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, Baruch the son of Neriah, son of Masalah, Messiah, sorry, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands, repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and might in your work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given in the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And yet you have said to me, 
O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses? Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans. Into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it with the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. From the, for the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it even to this day, so I'll remove it from before my face. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned to, to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever, For the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts so they they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land, of which you say, It is desolate, without man or beast. It has been given in the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds, and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return says the Lord. Well, our study in Jeremiah finds us continuing in this portion of Jeremiah that is full of hope, that is directing the attention that after the correction, after the discipline, after the expression of God's wrath, there is hope um, if we are responsive to it. And that is the key here. And God's expectation of Israel, God's foreknowledge of her, is that she will respond. And that they will enter into a new covenant. We have studied that to some degree. And today we want to look at really just a 
nonverbal, yet it becomes very verbal in here, a nonverbal statement by a prophet. And we often look at the prophets of what they say when they said, thus says the Lord. Well, that needs to be listened to. But the prophets very often were called upon to do things, to uh, some things that are pretty dramatic when you think about them, um, that uh, God directs them in aspects that are not just affecting them for a day or for a little season. It's not just a little drama. We're not talking about skits and, and plays. We are talking about things that, that dramatically change their lives. Um, when you see a prophet told you have to go marry this woman and have these children with this expectation that she's going to be unfaithful to you, you begin to understand the depth of what God calls them to. Uh, these aren't just little plays put on for your entertainment. Uh, they were dramatic acts that they were to exercise in the midst and the sight of the men of Israel to communicate powerful truth and also to learn powerful truth. And I think that needs to be understood that the, the first audience of their life lessons, if you will, were them. And we find them sometimes coming to God and saying, what does it mean? I'm obeying, but I don't understand it. What are you trying to get across to us? This doesn't, sometimes it doesn't even make sense. And so we get the idea somehow that they had it all figured out as they were doing it, that they carefully planned this, and they had this elaborate message to communicate through the midst of these dramatic actions. That really wasn't the case. God is the one that had carefully planned to communicate an, an elaborate message through dramatic action. The prophets didn't do all that planning. God did. They simply were told, you do this, and they obeyed. And I want you to notice that, that that is why God used these men, is that they had this we would call it blind faith, but it wasn't blind because they knew who they were following. But they had this obedient faith that submitted. And it was dramatic to have God come in and to say, here's what you're going to wear. Here's what you're going to eat. Here's what you're going to name your children. Here's how you're going to live. Here's where you're going to live. Um, here's the condition that you're going to have to be in for an extended period of time. And so we find that being brought upon Jeremiah in the text today, that God is going to use one facet of Jeremiah's life that is, that is costly, it is very public, and it is very confusing. It seems to be sending a lot of mixed messages. And remember, all of this is happening while the guy is in jail. Let's just set that foundation as well. Um, not exactly the place that we would finger a guy that is in God's will. And yet this man is maybe one of the only ones in the land who is walking in obedience to God, but he is imprisoned by his king for his sermon. And so God says, well, if he wants to shut you up, shut your mouth up, I'm going to preach the same messages, but I'm going to do it through your life instead of through your voice, since he has tried to silence you and takes issue with what you say now let's let him consider what I'm calling you to do. And so all of this is uh, at work in these men's lives. And so when we see them being obedient to that, 
That is fundamentally what sets them apart as effective and useful instruments to God. It wasn't somehow that um, uh, they were just smarter than or more spiritual than. It is simply a matter of obedience. And we find that prophet after prophet that God uses was obedient. And he demanded precise, complete, unquestioning obedience. Now, does that mean they couldn't question after the fact of, why did you have me do that? No, they needed to know that information. What are you trying to communicate? And God fills that in. But it was never, I'm not sure I want to do that. Um, there was a guy that did that, right? His name was Jonah, and he got slapped around a little bit in the sea um, for disobeying. Uh, another man was disobeyed and, and died for it. And so God's expectation was pretty heavy, not only on these prophets, but the other prophets that failed to obey and therefore aren't in your scriptures. They weren't used of God, uh, and they entered into the realm of false prophets. They were spiritual people who were wise and, and uh, identified in the school of prophets by uh, the people of Israel, but we don't have them before us here, and we have to conclude the reason we don't have them is because they did not meet this one criteria. There is absolute, complete, immediate obedience. And that's what sets these men apart so frequently. And it's what we want to really study today, as well as the ramifications of what God is doing. And is it something that should be evident in our lives as well? That we uh, see our world, we try to address our world, but our actions should... Uh, some bring sometimes some confusion to people's minds. Well, which way is it? Well, it's not one or the other. It's a both and, not an either or, and that we want to communicate to people. And so before we get into our study too much further, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the testimony of your working in Jeremiah's life and in this act of obedience and, and all that it communicates. And we pray that we might be sensitive to your desire for this in our lives today, that we similarly have been called to obey. We have a commission that we have been given, and we pray that we might fulfill that each day, and we recognize that your hand uh, cannot, will not, be upon those who refuse, who question and want all the answers before they obey, but rather that we might be like Abram and offer up our son and willingly do that without fully understanding until after the event of what your intentions are. Lord, give us that kind of faith. By believing in you, we can be declared righteous in your sight. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jeremiah is in jail. He has faithfully declared the message that God told him to go preach. Zedekiah doesn't like to hear it. And, and when you don't like to hear some guy walking around the city declaring a message, you get him out of the city streets and away from the ears of all the residents, and you put him in jail. So no, he can't really preach to anyone very effectively when he's in the prison, uh, within the king's house, it says even. And so we find him there, and it seems like, well, God's put him on a shelf now, and you can just sit there and wait, because how can you preach when you have no audience except for the prison walls and maybe a few guards um, but uh, God still has some work for him. I want you to notice that Zedekiah 
is trying to keep morale up in the city of Jerusalem, even while the Babylonians have surrounded the city. So we're not talking about Babylonians far off that might come. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah says, <laughs> when he's talking to God a little bit later on, um, have you looked outside? <laughs> um, the siege mounds, in verse 24, it says, look, the siege mounds, they've come to the city to take it, and the city's been given in the hand of the Chaldeans. So Jeremiah knows that the Babylonian army is there. What Zedekiah is trying to do is try to keep the courage of the city high, and the last thing you need is a prophet of God walking through the city saying, just surrender, just surrender. God's going to destroy this place. Zedekiah is not going to be your king very much longer. The king of Babylon is going to take him out. And that's the message, and Zedekiah is infuriated by this and says, I'm putting you in prison. I've got to stop that because we need courage, not people uh, preaching surrender. We want people preaching fight, fight, fight. This is Israel. It can't, this is Judah. This is Jerusalem. This city can't fall. We have the temple in it, even though it's already fallen once or twice by this point. But, you know, since when did mobs ever care about the truth? They really only care about who yells the loudest. And so that's what Zedekiah wants. He wants to stir them up to fight. To defend the city, their homes. So he puts Jeremiah in prison. And there he sits. And you might say, well, he's done. Um, he's got to sit there until he's either released by the Babylonians um, or he just, uh, or die at the hand of his king. And we kind of think, well, he's done. But we find God having other expectations and so God comes to him while he's in prison, verse 6, and says, here's what I have. The word Lord comes to him and says, now, someone's going to come and visit you. <clears throat> it's going to be your uncle's kid. The son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you, and he's going to have a very strange request. He's going to say, buy my field. Uh, it is yours to redeem, which is a very interesting declaration, and we come into the redemption requirements of the kinsman redeemer. And if you've read the book of Ruth, uh, there's a lot involved there. And remember that Boaz says, well, there's someone else, uh, uh, Ruth and Naomi, that is a near relative, and they have a right to redeem your, your possessions. And he says, I have to go to him. So he goes to him at the gate and says, there's this field, belonged to Naomi, I'm, and uh, needs to be redeemed. That is brought back into the family. It needs to be paid for and bought in and to maintain it because Naomi can't keep it. Can't be kept. She doesn't have the resources to keep it and to use it. And you have the first right of redemption. The guy says, I'll take it. I'll buy that field. I'll redeem it. And he says, well, remember, when you buy the field, you also have to take this gal as a wife and raise up a son to her dead husband's name. And as soon as the guy hears that, he goes, uh, I can't do that, which really means I won't do that. I, he says, I won't ruin my inheritance. I don't want to uh, infect my line of inheritance I already have established for my children. Uh, and so he turns it down and says, you buy the field. And so this right of redemption is what's coming into play. And so here comes this... Uh, gentleman into the jail and says um, will you buy my field for the right of redemption is yours to buy you're my nearest relative is the indication and that we do not have the resources to uh, 
maintain and sustain it. Whether his uncle died, whatever happened, whatever circumstances we're not privy to. But the circumstances were such that in order to maintain that property within the family was going to require uh, it to be purchased. And whether they had uh, incurred a lot of debt, we, we don't know. We don't know what the circumstances were. But he comes to Jeremiah and he asks him, please exercise your obligation, if you will, to redeem this property, to buy it from us, then we can pay off our debts or whatever. We can keep this property in our family. And he becomes the owner of the property um, as a representative of the family. And so here comes, God says, this is what's going to happen. He's going to come. He's going to have this request. Sure enough, he shows up. Uh, Hanamel shows up. It says, please buy this property. We're in a tough situation. And you're looking at him, you say, okay, the siege mounds are around the city. The whole land is getting ready to collapse into the possession of the Chaldeans. This isn't really the best time to be buying up property. In fact, I don't think there could ever be a worse time to invest your resources into buying land. Um, in a land that's being overrun by enemies. And so uh, Jeremiah knows this is God. God wants him to buy this field. He doesn't understand why, but because God told him, and sure enough, uh, the man shows up just like God said he was going to with the request that exactly what God said he would ask for. And so um, verse 9, it says, I bought the field. From Hanamel, son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. Expensive price, expensive debt, whatever it was that was required of this family. And you and I might look at it and say, what a foolish thing to do. And Jeremiah himself is thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done with 17 shekels of silver is buy up land that's just about to be lost to the Chaldeans and might have already been lost. It might have already been overrun and taken over. But he, because this is a redemption purchase, we have to take this deal, this purchase, to the city gates, which is really what God wanted to happen anyway. And so now... Here the guy shut up in prison is going to fulfill a redemption obligation upon a near family member, which is a big deal in Israel, and should that transaction needs to be done in a public setting with all these witnesses. Not just, uh, you know, let's drag a guard in here to witness this, but with witnesses in the religious and political or hierarchy of Israel. It needs to be done very publicly with men of prominence. So now, the king is trying to isolate Jeremiah. Here comes, God sends in this relative to ask him to exercise his right of redemption, and it requires them to do this all in public. And so they have to go out there, they have to get these, the people to enable this instrument to happen, and to gather together in a very public setting. And it says that uh, he took the purchase deed and uh, had to be 
sealed. It had to be accomplished according to the law and the custom. Uh, and so they had the sealed one, the open one. They had to have witnesses. All of this had to be done and had to be correctly recorded for posterity's sake. You might say, well, there is no posterity for Israel right now. There's no future. And this is the underlying message that God is seeking to communicate through the actions of Jeremiah. So he has taken Jeremiah out of isolation, put him into a place at the city gates, uh, which is not necessarily at the gate, but it is that place where all the legal transactions of the community happen. And so here's all the prominent members of society, and here comes the prophet Jeremiah with 17 shekels of silver with his nephew, now it would be a cousin, right? My uncle's kid is my cousin. Yeah, so my first cousin comes up, and um, we're going to have this transaction. I'm going to redeem this land in Anathoth. And this is the guy that's been preaching, it's all going to fall the Chaldeans. This can't be lost on these people. Why is this guy doing this when he has been prophetically declaring that we're all going to fall? And from an outsider's view, you're scratching your head saying, this makes no sense at all. This is completely inconsistent. There's an inconsistency between his message and his actions. They don't seem to line up at all. But that is because they were only listening to one part of his message. And the only confusion comes into place if we are still steady in our rebellion against God and do not know the person and character of God. If you know the person and character of God and you know the um, requirements of God in response to, to prophetic preaching, um, you would know this may, is perfectly consistent. Why? Because the preaching isn't gloom and doom. The preaching is repent, repent, repent to avoid. I am preaching you what hazards you're confronting because if you would repent, it would all go away. And we've already seen that happen with the Assyrians. And it could happen right now. Yes, the, the siege mounds are being built against this city. There are all the... the weapons and the, and the materials of war surrounding us, all you have to do is repent and God is faithful and those armies will just melt away and disappear or God will strike them. This is the purpose of prophetic preaching. And so Jeremiah's actions are not inconsistent with his message. His message is if you will just repent, place your faith and hope in God, We'll have a future now. And then here's the more subtle and more complicated, if you will, message, uh, the more involved part, and that is even if you don't, even if you're going to persist in your rebellion, even if you're going to uh, just arch your back and, and refuse to... Uh, uh, respond to the comforting and to the calling of God in your life, um, that he calls you to repentance and to obedience, even if you're going to stiffen yourself against that, God is still faithful forever. And there is a distant future, if not a current future. Now, 
Did Jeremiah understand all this? Did the people understand all this? Well, not yet. Um, and so Jeremiah, whether he does it publicly in this occasion, whether he does it privately, we find that uh, after the event, at verse 16, it says, um, I delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah. I prayed to the Lord. And whether he was, this is a public prayer or whether it was his own prayer, we find that he is going to lay the, his, his statement before the Lord. We're going to study that here in a little bit. But I want you to notice that God had already made the declaration. So I don't want to miss that. In this public setting, this is what had to be said publicly during the signing of all these papers and the recording of it and all the witnessing. Here's what had to be said. Um, Baruch was charged with this. Thus, here's verse 14 is where I'm at. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So there it is, the declaration. So we have the message intact and delivered. And even after saying the words and declaring the message, having obediently doing the act and shelling out 17 shekels of silver, having done all of that, Jeremiah is still somewhat confused himself. It just doesn't seem very consistent. Lord, I know that you're the powerful one. You're the almighty. You are the God that has done great things. And he goes back and he starts to rehearse that. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that this morning. Um, but he's going to rehearse that. And then he says, and I know that you're capable, but the people aren't responding and the siege mounds are built and the city's about to fall. Are you telling me it's not going to fall? That, that you changed your mind? What's going on? He himself is a little confused. And he himself is trying to deal with this message. How does this work? How's it going to be implemented in this land at this time? Are you telling me that people are going to actually respond? That there is a near future, but it seems you've been very clear that there is no near future because the people won't. They're stubbornly clinging. They want to fight instead of surrender. And so he comes to God in verse 25, having, knowing that everything God proclaimed is happening in the midst of it. Verse 25 says, And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for the money. He says, It doesn't make, and take witnesses. But it doesn't make sense because the city has been given to the hand of the Chaldeans. This doesn't correlate. And now the very brief message that was given back there in uh, verses 14 and 15, that brief declaration is expanded on by God. And God said, Jeremiah, I want you to understand the fullness of my message. Because of this transition, you have been preaching against their sin, you've been preaching calamity that's going to come, and rightly so, but there is also an aspect of my plan that has hope. And unfortunately, it's for the distant future. And now God begins to rehearse with Jeremiah what's going on, the big picture. And that is that I want you to communicate that there is a distant hope. And you think, well, Jeremiah should have figured that out. 
yeah, probably. I mean, he tells the guy, put the deeds in a clay jar and put them somewhere safe because we need to find them a long, long, long time from now. Isn't that interesting? Um, by the way, this is the practice if you want to preserve literature. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls exist. That's why they exist, is because they wrote these precious things down. They put them in these jars, clay jars, that provided, in an arid environment, provided a perfect place to preserve this very fragile instrument of paper. These very fragile things were preserved, and not perfectly, uh, realize that most of the Dead Sea Scrolls were just flakes. I mean, there was very few of them that were perfectly preserved. And of course, the main one you can go and visit in Israel, and they've built an entire building around it. It's the, the Museum of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it looks like the top of one of those jars, the lid from it. And how was it found? It was found by a shepherd boy trying to chase sheep out of a cave and threw a rock up in there and broke one. Something broke up there. What's up in that cave? And he crawls up in there and he discovers the greatest discovery archaeologically of our age. Just by throwing rocks. So don't keep your kids from throwing rocks. You never know what they'll find. And they're going, yeah. So God has communicated this is something for the distant future. I want you to, and by the way, this vase and these scroll, this deed is somewhere in Israel today. I would not be shocked if it was found lately or soon. God says, you're going to set this aside and it's going to be preserved for a day. It is a communication that distant from now, people are going to be buying and selling land, and they're going to be doing title searches. Whose land was this anyway? And with this land in Anathoth, they're going to come, oh, this belongs to the family of Jeremiah. He bought it in Jerusalem back there in the day. And we know the exact year, don't we? The exact year of this instrument we know. And so we have this, and God says, this is my intention. And since you missed out on what I was trying to communicate by your actions of putting this in an earthen vessel, it's going to so last many days, and communicating specifically that houses, fields, and vineyards are going to be possessed again in this land, um, how communicate it to you in a fuller way, and we have that really given to us, uh, given the history of why they have... Going, they are going to follow the Babylonians because they persist in their sin against God. They will not come to repentance. And then, verse 37, he begins to, again, unfold his long-range plan that he is going to gather them out. Yes, the anger, the fury, and the wrath are going to be exercised, but they, those things do not negate God's faithfulness, God's love, God's goodness. They are complementary. They are both necessary in, in every good parent that you're going to have to express anger, wrath, rage. You're going to have to express that. 
Your children need to see it, and they need to feel it sometimes so that they recognize, I need to repent, I need to turn, i got to stop that in my life. It is infuriating my parents, and it will infuriate society, apparently, down the road. And so we have that, but we also have the tenderness and the love and the care and the faithfulness that says, one day I'm going to bring you out of the nations. I'm going to gather you, and I'm going to have an eternal covenant. We studied that several weeks now. I'm going to have this covenant with you. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be all my heart, and we are going to uh, be uh, people and God to one another, and, and it's going to be a time of joy and rejoicing in the land, and there's going to be uh, you're going to own the land, you're going to work the land, and it is going to be your possession, and you're going to have all the goodness of God given to you. And so, do not think that this is the end of Israel. Simply because Judah falls, this isn't the end. And he's not referring to the return that comes 70 years later. That's not really what he's going to be talking about. He's talking about a, a, a future one that's even to us. And he says in verse 42, I'm sorry, verse 41, I'll rejoice over them to do them good. I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I'll bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And again, he reiterates the declaration that he made in public with Baruch there in verse 15. Houses and fields and vineyards will be sold. They will be possessed by the people of Israel in this land. And so we are seeing that come. But in the midst of this, um, we have a prayer of Jeremiah. And I want to take a little time to look at his engagement with God. Because he reveals some interesting things that are, um, in, in one instance, is one of the few places where it's, mentioned anywhere in the scriptures. But it is here in Jeremiah's rehearsal of God's working, not just among Israel, but among all the nations. And so let's look at it here, um, beginning verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 17. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. Um, he recognizes that that God can do anything. And so, yes, you can turn back the Babylonians and you can clean this all up really quick. Um, I recognize that, that you have the power to do it. Not only do you have the power to do that, you also have the disposition to do that. If you look in the next verse, verse 18, you show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers and the bosom of their children after them, the great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, so you have this, this disposition of God that is just waiting and is anxious to just deliver his people. And even if it's only for one generation. Um, and so he does that, right? He did that um, for Hezekiah. He says, I'm not going to judge you. It's just going to fall on the heads of your kids. I'll postpone it. And the indication is, I'm going to just keep postponing it with each child, each king that wants to honor me. I'll, I'll hold back my wrath as long as I see a king that will honor me. And so under Josiah's reforms, God says, oh, we'll postpone it. He puts it off. It doesn't 
go away because that sin has to be punished at some point, um, but he will push it off. And so God has a disposition that is waiting and ready always to forgive, to deliver, to bring redemption. He has that power to do it, and he has a disposition to do it. He wants to make it happen. And that's why he sends the prophets, and that's why he does all those things, not just for Israel, but for all men. Remember, this is, this is a historical narrative. That is, this is chronologically in order, I believe, what Jeremiah is sharing before God. So you created everything, you have the power to do that, and you have a disposition, a loving kindness to thousands, which is a declaration of not just one people, but all peoples. That you will put off the judgment that should be on their heads if they will simply repent. That you will repay the iniquity, you'll push the iniquity off from, of the fathers into the children after them. And now it's their responsibility to respond to God. He's not saying you're going to have to pay for your father's sin. It's that that sin has to be paid for um, and you're inheriting it from your father because all are sinners because you all have a human father. You all inherited your father's sin. Sorry. I got my four here. Sorry about that. Uh, nothing I can do about it other than not have you. Aren't you glad I didn't choose that route? They're not sure. But... <laughs> So now it's going to be your children's responsibility. And the idea that somehow you can, well, I, I encounter this in dealing with people. Well, my, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. I was like, so what? And so what if your grandfather was a mass murderer? He was still a sinner, and that still falls on your shoulders, and you still are going to be visited by God's wrath for that because you also are a sinner. But God is lovingly kind, and he will redeem you. He will push that off. He will deliver you if you respond. And so the old adage, God has children and no grandchildren. And what we're saying is you can't trust in the faith of your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, no more than you look to uh, pay for their sin, but yet you inherit their sin, but you do not inherit their righteousness. You do not inherit their faith because their faith wasn't self-produced. It wasn't from them. Their sin was from within them, but their righteousness was from God. And so you're going to have to inherit righteousness from the same source they got it, and that is from God, yourself. You're going to have to make him your father to become righteous because your human father can only give you sin and not righteousness. And so we find here this loving kindness of God toward thousands that he will do that. And we, we see it in Scripture. We see where God comes to Nineveh through Jonah, since we already mentioned him, and says, I, I'm, your sin is so wicked, it's going to be, I need to destroy you. And they repent. And Jonah knew this was God's capable of, correct, of receiving people who are willing to receive his correction and forgive them, and puts off their punishment for a generation or two. Nineveh's still going to get hammered by God because they're going to lapse back into their sin. But for a generation, Nineveh responds, and God blesses them and delivers them, and they uh, just burst on the scene historically and just 
conquer everybody and the Assyrian Empire is born. Even taking out Israel. And so he is rehearsing, this is God's disposition. And then verse 19. You are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And so God, in history, from sin on, is looking at all men's ways. And so in his wisdom, in his counsel, in his knowledge, he knows the condition of men. He knows that we're made of dirt. He knows what our hearts are like. He knows um, that we are bent towards sin, um, and yet he is still engaged. And he is still working in us to convict us. He is working in us uh, to move us to repentance and righteousness. And we should recognize that he is doing this to all men. Do you see the inclusive language of Jeremiah here? That he does this to everyone. It's not just Israelis that he is interested in. He did this to everyone. And the indication here is that when he called Abram, that Abram wasn't the first one he called, and maybe not the only one he called, but he was the one who responded. And did what God said he did. Ah, you want me to pack up and leave to a land you're going to show me later? Okay, which way do I walk? And the same spirit, I'll obey first, I'll understand later. And that is the spirit of genuine submission. And if you want to know real obedient children, it is children who obey first and understand later. This is real obedience. And I required it of my children. I want to really, you new families, new, new parents, you need to require that of your children. The idea that you have to explain your commands before they will obey them is rebellion. You give your commands, they are obeyed, and then they can understand it. I will explain it later. I shouldn't have to explain myself to my children to get them to obey. That is a form of rebellion in their hearts. And the evidence of that is clearly seen in Scripture. God says, you, I command, you obey, I'll explain later. That's what happened to Jeremiah, happened to Abram, happened to Abraham with his son Isaac. Uh, it happens even to Jonah. It happens again and again and again, whether they obey or disobey. Uh, God says, here's my command, you obey it. Don't. Ask me why, and I'll explain it later. And the truly righteous, that are really trusting in God, obey first and understand later. And this is the principle of our Christian life. We obey first. We'll understand later. And there are many things that God calls us to obey that we may not fully understand. And we think that gives us an excuse to ignore it. And this is a spirit that I see commonly among churches and Christians. If I can't understand it, if, I, if you can't tell me why, I'm not going to do it. I had one teenage young man in this church that uh, we 
uh, you know, you say you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior. Why, do you ref- why don't you want to be baptized? I don't understand it. I was like, you don't want to obey God? Why should I have to? I was like, then you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, so you shouldn't be baptized. The only things you obey are what you believe you understand. You are not a child of faith. God is not your father. You are not in submission to him. You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a follower of your ways and your ways alone, and they happen every now and then to line up with God's by accident. And so God's disposition is there, but he is wise in his counsel. He sees your ways, and he knows the beginning from the end, and you don't. And when he gives a command, he sees the whole picture. You see this narrow little sliver of time in your life, and you think you should question his counsel. Why should I? And frankly, when I hear a child say that to a parent, I was like, well, that kid rules that house, not the parent. The parent's not the parent. And so it would be if we look to God and says, why should I? We are going to get the fruit of our doings, which is rebellion. And so we lay this all out. Remember, we haven't gotten to Abraham. We really haven't, in, in Jeremiah's rehearsal of history, he really hasn't gotten to Israel yet. This is how God works among the nations, among peoples. And then verse 20, you have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day. And there's been a lot of discussion of what is he talking about? And back around 1900, 120 years ago or so, a man picked this up and he says, a sign and wonder in the land of Egypt. Uh, that's still standing when Jeremiah was alive. It was still around. Everyone knew what he was talking about in that day. And in studying some other portions of Job and, and Ezekiel um, and, every, and several others, um, he, and, and the description of this sign and wonder that's standing in Egypt, and by the way, it's still standing there today, that this is the Great Pyramid was his conclusion. It has to be. It's at the border and in the middle of Egypt. How can you be at the border and in the middle? And so he did all the calculations, and his name was Darby, and uh, have his book if you want to look at it. And he says, this is the only structure that is, it's the border between upper and lower Egypt, and it's in the middle, and if you hit a circumference and, and of the whole Nile Delta, and then he started doing some work about all the land masses on the entire globe. He says, this is the middle that there is a sign of wonder that is standing in Egypt to this day, he says, and it's still true today, that God put there. Now, did God physically go and put there? No, but Hyslops, um, Hisclops, Hiscox, His. Anyway, the ancient Egyptian historian describing the construction of the Great Pyramid described it as shepherd kings from the east came in to our land. They shut down every false temple Every, all the false gods, and they directed Egypt's worship to the one true and living God, their God, 
They were called shepherd kings, and they employed 100,000 Egyptians to build the Great Pyramid. And the Great Pyramid wasn't the last one built, but the first one built, and all the others are simply copies. And all the other ones are totally different than that one. Incredible. So we have Egyptian historians talking about this, and, and God put that. In fact, the contention of Darby is that the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, chief meaning highest, and a pyramid has how many corners? You're thinking, how many corners is it? Five? Five corners, four at the bottom and one at the top. And his contention was the one at the top was never put in place, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone that will only have its top cornerstone when Christ establishes his kingdom. And that is the place where Egypt is, has to go and sacrifice to God for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. Incredible work. If you want to read it, I'll be glad to lend it to you. Um, and I think it has a lot of credence. And, uh, and also the whole structure of the pyramid and how it is not a burial chamber. There's nothing buried in that one. All the others are burial chambers, but that one isn't. There is no burial vault. They're, they're not, it's totally different. And I believe Jeremiah is referencing the Great Pyramid as a sign and a wonder in the land of Egypt that's still standing. That is to call Egypt to remember that there was a day where you knew the one true and living God. He goes on, then after rehearsing that in verse 20, the last half verse, and in Israel. Now you have in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as is this day. And so we have in the land of Egypt this sign and wonder, and then in Israel, among, among men, you have all that happened with, and he gets into their exodus in verse 21. It begins the exodus. So all that's, and again, I, I See very strongly a chronology here. Now we get to the Exodus, and he begins to rehearse all that happened in the Exodus with a strong arm, outstretched arm, with great terror. You brought them out of the land of Egypt, again with signs and wonders, and this time the signs and wonders are obviously uh, referring to events that happened around the Exodus of all the, the plagues that were set, the crossing of the Red Sea, the destruction of, of uh Pharaoh's uh, chariots as an army, all that happened and all of that brings them into a land. They take possession of verse 23 and then they do not obey or walk in the law. And Jeremiah goes one step farther. He says, they have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. By the time it gets to his days, the early days, there was rebellion and squashed, and rebellion squashed. There was revival. There was obedience to the law. But by Jeremiah's day, he's going around looking, um, at this late hour, they're not doing anything of your law. They're not one law they're keeping. Total lawlessness in terms of the Mosaic law, the Levitical system. The total lawlessness in Jeremiah's day. They've not done anything. And so... This is why you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. And here it is. And in a very brief declaration, Jeremiah has painted out the workings of God before Abram, 
the early years of Abraham, through the Exodus under Moses, all the way through the judges and the kings, the prophets, all the way to his day, very briefly, succinctly lays it out there. And we find that in his opinion, they have just deteriorated to the point that there's not a single law that Israel's keeping by this point. They've done nothing of your law. And they haven't. In fact, when God responds, he says, yes, they've even desecrated my holy mountain. On their roofs, and even in my temple, they have set up balls. They have set up idols. And there is nothing but rebellion, so I have to purge this place. With the sword, with famine, with pestilence, with death, I need to empty this land for a season that, I might have, that they might have a future to recognize the seriousness of the situation because it's obvious that they will not correct themselves while they're in their land. But perhaps a generation or two outside of their land might get their attention. And so we have this beautiful interaction, I think, between Jeremiah and the Lord where God's in prison and say, I'm not done with you. <laughs> You're not ineffectual. Men can't quiet what God speaks. And he can't quiet God's instruments. They can try. They can put them to death. They can imprison them. They can yank out their tongues. They can do all that, but they can't quiet it because what can't be spoken can be shared, shown. And it's evident. And here in Jeremiah's seemingly strange action of buying land in a place that's being overrun by a foreign army, we find a powerful message of who God is and what he plans to do if we will trust and obey him without question. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word and for the powerful testimony of Jeremiah and, and Lord, his willingness to obey and to shell out that money without really understanding, knowing that he could trust you that your ways and your counsel is perfect. Lord, give us that kind of obedience to do what you call us to do without necessarily understanding all of what's involved, but simply obey because you have declared it. Give us a spirit of submission to you and to one another as you have called us to. And Lord, we thank you, and we're going to do this a lot these weeks to come, Lord willing, and to praise you for the future that is sure because you have promised it and you are faithful. And so with confidence, we look forward to it and pray that our lives might reflect that sure hope in our hearts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.